Hey guys, at the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. Okay, I've, I've already given myself a deal with, you know, I don't know who I spoke to, whether it's God or where, but I've made a promise to myself, you know, if Friday doesn't come, I'm going, I'm going all in. Welcome to A Time to Rebuild, the podcast that explores the impact of crime from incarceration to positive transformation and everything in between. Mick Cronin. Mag Wilson. How you doing? I'm good. Look, I know who you are, but our listeners don't know you from a brush potato. So would you care to explain yourself? You had to use potato, did you? I went there. Jeez. I'm sorry. Um, so for me, it started when I came to Australia way, way back after Bolt, as they say, Mac, um, in 2003. And I started working in drug and alcohol. Um, and then from there, I was offered a job on the, from the YMCA Bridge Project. Just turned it down a couple of times. Um, it was a brand new project. I was kind of cool doing my own thing. And a little then, bit of hard to get. Yeah, a little bit I had to get, you know, see if they'd give me a big offer. They gave me less <laughs> and then I took it. Um, so not good negotiation skills, got better. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I then started working with the YMCA Bridge Project. And for the listeners, the YMCA Bridge Project is YMCA Rebuild's parent. That's where it all started. YMCA Rebuild was a social enterprise that came out of it. So I started working for the Bridge Project 2007. Initially, I was just going into youth detention centres and around um, um, the community, and I was assessing young people for the justice system. I was looking at all their interest in employment and then mostly spending time looking at what their barriers to employment were. From there, I'd attach them to, uh, to um, companies, and from there, I would case manage both the company and the young people, and, and uh, with the end result being that they were building careers and we were reducing recidivism. So moving forward um, from director, 2012, I became the bridge project manager and be careful what you wish for there. So then it kind of changed for me. Then I kind of went into a more of um, developing programs, seeking funding, uh, working closely with government and business and also the community and which I really, really enjoyed. So in 2018, then I stepped into the executive manager role of youth services but I kept the two main areas of, of my focus and passion, which is youth justice and social enterprise. So now in my new role, I have a really unique opportunity that I, could, I, that I focus on just creating social change. So, Mark, tell the listeners about yourself. My role with the YMCA started back in 2015. Uh, I came over from the homeless sector and I haven't really looked back. So starting off just a couple of days a week running the sports and recreation programs uh, in custodial centres. And then I moved on into the, our education programs that we run uh, both in prison with young offenders and once they get into the community as well. Uh, and that's statewide. So we go as far as Mildura uh, to as close as Carlton. Yeah, so my journey over the last five years of working with young offenders is, uh, has been great. Challenging at times, but, but really enjoy the work. Well, it's not about us, is it, Mick? No, it's not. No. So I think we should introduce our first guest. Today, we have a young man who grew up in country Victoria and entered the prison system at 21. His early start in offending eventually led him to a crossroads, where he had to decide between life of crime and a life of purpose. And I'm so glad you chose the latter. Welcome to the show, Sorte. Thanks for having me. Here he is. Uh, it's an honour yeah. to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Now, we've known you for a while, Sorte, and, and I think um, I've known you for a fair while, but I wanted to kind of start with, I think, we, with an amazing moment that's probably one of the most significant moments I know in my time at the Bridge Project and for anyone that happened to be there with you. So instead of asking you questions straight away, what we wanted to do was, and I'm not sure if you've ever heard this back, is we wanted to play a speech that you made. And I don't know if you remember this speech, but it was in 2018 Bridge Project Breakfast. It was in front of 440 people. So, you know, everyone from the, you know, ministers to, you know, influential business people and so forth were in that room. 
Now, I was extremely privileged to have a front row seat. Mark, you were in that room as well that day? I was. I was. And, you know, you made a speech that I think resonated and stayed with people and for a long time. And I thought that we would get that speech, we'd get Mark to play that speech for us, and then we could listen to it. And then from there, we'd ask you a few questions. But I'm really interested to see how you react to hearing yourself speak, because I don't think you've... Have you, have you heard it ever since then? No, I haven't. All right. All right. Should be good. Oh. Hello everyone, my name is Sota and I'm here to talk to you about my journey. I grew up in Shepparton, it's about an um, hour, 45 minutes, two hours, it just depends on how you drive. Um, and like most kids, I grew up with loving parents. Um, they were great, very hard working, they were fruit pickers. They worked very hard so I could enjoy going to school, hanging out with my mates and um, just enjoying family time. It was around the age of 15 that I started getting into trouble and distancing myself from my family. I started drinking and doing drugs. That led me to do stupid things like stealing cars and assaulting people, which I am not proud of. My crimes got more violent and that I I ended up leaving town so I could escape the law because I was too scared that I was going to get locked up. I moved to Melbourne to start fresh, but I kept making poor decisions. At this time, my relationship with my father was bitter. We would constantly butt heads because I was not working and being drunk every day. My mother, on the other hand, she would always sit me down and she would talk to me. She would say, is this the example you want to set for your little sisters? As the years went on, I continued to drink excessively and spent late nights out doing the wrong things. It soon became a must to be intoxicated all the time. And not only did I want to feel good, I wanted to look good as well. That's when I started robbing liquor stores and clothing outlets just to satisfy my desires. It wasn't enough though, I wanted it all. That's when I committed an armed robbery and I got sent away for two years. I remember on the third night when they locked that cell door, I lied on that hard bed. I could feel a cold hand creep from the back and grab my heart. All my feelings went cold. There was no more running away, no more running back to my mum telling me to get me out of this situation. It was the first time in my life I had to be honest with myself and face the problems. It was really difficult on my family. They didn't raise me to be in, ending up in jail. I felt like I've shamed my family, which I constantly thought about every day. I was released on an intensive three-year corrections order in November 2016. When I was released, I found it really hard to find a job and I struggled every day not to resort back to my old ways. I was lucky that my family were supportive and willing to take me back after what I put them through. Not long after my release, I was referred to the YMCA Bridge Project for employment opportunities. I, sec I secured a job with Rebuild and in January 2017, and I haven't looked back. In May last year, I lost my mum. I lost the captain of the ship that ran our house. And with three younger sisters, they didn't know what to do. I had to stand up and take leadership. I owed it to my mum to be the best I could be. I now have custody of my two younger sisters as my dad is experienced some medical issues. I've now been employed for 18 months and was recently promoted to put, to be put as full-time staff member, which I am really proud of. Before this, I couldn't hold a job. I've never been full-time at all. My relationship with my family is now better than ever. 
they are proud of me. It hasn't been an easy journey, but I've been supported all the way by my employer who helped me enroll my sisters into school, something I wouldn't have a clue about, and I didn't expect at my age to be doing parent-teacher interviews. Life and work are good for me at the moment. I recently got engaged to the love of my life and can't wait to start a family. Looking back, all I needed was a chance and some support. And I would encourage anyone in this room that if you can provide that support, please do it. Before I sit down, I would just like to extend my gratitude to the Rebuild team and to two men that really helped me through my dark days. Damien Carmody and Alan Moody. Without you guys, I wouldn't be here today. God bless. Thank you. How does it feel here, hearing that? Oh, what, two, what, two years on now? Two years on, wow. Wow. Yeah, it really takes me back. Uh, mm. So, wow. Um, yeah, that's the first time I've heard that actually. And yeah. Uh, so I had two people that I met for the first time uh, on either side of me uh, that day. And after you got up and spoke, I think there wasn't a dry eye in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually remember... Um, walking down and I remember when I was writing the speech um, one of the case managers said make sure you stand up like stay there and just you know embrace it but then I started seeing everyone stand up and I just I just shook and quickly tried to get back to my seat <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it was um because yeah, I was sitting front row and like Max said I, I always vividly remember that it's just one of them moments where I, I was sitting there and I was just thinking this is why we do this and this is this is why we do this work. And I think you captured it better than I thought anyone. I think even you thought and everyone thought like you just you just owned it. Um, and I, I remember the day before we did the speech. Do you remember we were sitting in here? And, yeah. And, and, yeah, and, yeah. And and I remember this, Maggie. I said, yeah, read, read the speech out to us. Just read it out. They'll be fine, you know. So so I said, you remember you read it to me. Yeah. Um, and I swear to God, when he finished, he, I, you, you said to me. Is that all right? And and um, and I turned into a probably a thirteen year old uh, young kid going through puberty. My voice went. I was like, yeah, that, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I actually had to walk out of the room and just take a second because it was such emotion, and it was such vulnerability, and it was just it was just something that I didn't expect. And on the day, um, you delivered it even better. You delivered it looking at people, not even looking down on the sheet. It was like unbelievable. Did you did you even realize the impact that you were having, or was that just you know after? Um, to be honest, before I went up, I wanted that impact. Um, I prepared myself for it. I was listening to, um, just, I was watching motivational speakers and, you know, listening to them, how they talk, because obviously I knew I wanted to give an impact, but that all went out the window. The first 10 seconds I stood up mm. there and I was just like, you know what, get it done, yeah. be genuine. So at the time I didn't know, like I I was looking at people, but I wasn't looking at them. I was just making sure my eyes scanned one way and went back the other way. It wasn't until the end when everyone stood up, um, uh, you know, I was like, oh, they actually listened to me because I just thought people were just eating their breakfast. <laughs> but yeah. You stopped them mid bacon. Yeah. You stopped them mid bacon. And yeah, and it was incredible, an incredible moment as well. So yeah, look, so, you know, congratulations on that moment because I've been to many functions and conferences and spoke at stuff. And, and I swear to God, every time I'm at one of these things, someone will pull me aside and go, how's Sarte going? And I don't even know who these people are. Like, and, and, and they go, I was there at the breakfast. And they remember it. And, and you know, our patron, Paul Ruse, has openly spoken about that a lot of times as well. He remembers it vividly. The Minister of Corrections at that time spoke about it the year after at the breakfast, spoke yeah. about you. So it's, um, it's credit to you for what you did because it wasn't an easy thing, um, but it had such a, an amazing impact. Hmm. So I guess we'll bring it back to the start in growing up in Shepparton. 
It was good. Uh, I grew up. Um, so obviously, I moved from Brisbane. Um, my mum was single when I had my sister, and um, she met my stepfather. So um, it was good. It was, you know, for the first time in my life, um, you know, I had both parents. The only thing that was hard for me was transitioning from this rugby league state to an AFL state. <laughs> and, you know, I went to school and I'm like, let's play footy. And these guys were passing the ball, hitting it with their hand. I'm like, that's not how you pass, mate. That's not footy. <laughs> So yeah, it was um it was good growing up there. Um it was very different. Um but yeah, I liked it and I still go back and visit sometimes. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's good. And what about um so you talk about, you know, what what age is when you know, I know in your speech you mentioned a little bit, but what age did you start to go down that other path? Um I think it was uh, 15 um, I know because in year 7 I was I was playing up that bad at school that no other school would accept me that year 8 no no year 8 they did that but year 9 they said you have one chance at this school so I, ch- I totally switched with my friends hanging out with my friends and that whole year 9 I did incredibly well because I only had one chance, like they were to the point they said, "You get one detention, you're out of here," you know. Um, so after year nine, I didn't last. I thought I was sweet, you know. I did my one year probation, but it was for the rest of my school life at that at that school, and I got expelled in like the first term, and um, I had a that was my first crime committed when I had a fight. Um, and then just from there, just went on downhill. Mm. Like I wasn't at school. Um, so I just thought I'll, I'll try to live that adult life. And I tried to go picking with my parents. I couldn't even handle that. Yeah, so I just, yeah, spoiled from there. When things started to get a bit more serious, what did that look like? From fighting in the schoolyard yeah. um, to then, I guess, yeah, going to that next level? Um. It was it was at that time because you're just exposed to a whole new world, and then at that time my family, um, when I got expelled from school, my mum just said, you know what, we stayed here because you were in high school, we're going to Melbourne. They moved back to Melbourne. They moved to Melbourne, and I ran away back to Shepparton, and so I was um, exposed to that whole new like. I run my own life now that mm. I just, you know, it was exciting at the time, but then it had its downfalls. It was a very emotional roller coaster because I had to fend for myself. But in saying that, I didn't know at the time, I still had family and friends, you know, still trying to look out after me because I was only 15 trying to live like a 22 year old. Mm. Yeah. But um, I could say it was exciting just because you're just exposed to a whole new world. You're like, oh, what's this? What's that? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us then, how did you end up in prison? How did, how did that all unfold? Um, so later on down the track, like obviously I, I moved to Melbourne. I think I, I started doing good. I actually started training, um, and because I, I didn't know, but know any know anyone, but then like I just had enough, you know. I got too bored, and then so I started trying to meet people on the streets. That just led to drinking all the time, and coming from a countryside to you know a more city city side, it's it's like the crimes are more. They they get more bigger because you can do it here. So it was just like, it's like, it was like nothing. Whereas in the country, you break into that store, everyone knows. Mm. Everyone knows who it was. Where here, you, you had that chance to hide. So, um, yeah, it, it just started off with just like one bottle from one liquor store. And then 
over the years, it just got worse and worse. And then the more you got, the more bigger you wanted to go. And I think it comes down to the thrill as well. Like you're trying to one up yourself, you know, because on the streets, you know, someone hears, oh, he hit that. Well, you know, well I'm going to hit that and that, mm. you know, and watch my name get around. I hit two while well, that guy hit one. So it was more like that as well. It was, there was a little competition within the group who can get the most. So, yeah. So you commit an arm robbery. Yep. And you find yourself in prison. Yeah. So tell us about the first time you were locked up in prison and, what, and from that point on, how your life changed. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was just, uh, I was just stunned. I was stunned. I went to the custody centre. And that place is just no daylight. And I remember asking a bloke in there, I said, is this jail? He goes, no, mate. He goes, this is the custody centre. You want to get out of here? So I just slept my way until I was um, taken to a proper prison. And it was like um, when you get in that cell, like when you finally get in that cell and you know you're going to be there for a while, it was like, damn, this is where I live, like... I have to share a room with another bloke, you know. And for like for once in my life, I, I had to accept that. Like, I couldn't swindle my way out of this. I couldn't be like, oh, you know what, maybe I'll just get a bigger room. No, nah, I'm not going to stay here. I'll just go back where I was. Like, there was none of that. Like, the guy goes, that's your room. You don't like it. Tough luck, mate. Explain to the listeners what... What's your room look like? What's in it? Um, you could probably, it's probably two and a half or three metres wide. You got two beds on top of each other, so they're bunk beds. And then you got a bench where you can put your TV right across from your bunk bed and then your toilet and shower next to that. I, I know from my work that I've done inside, uh, a lot of guys... Uh, can get can get used to just the day to day stuff, yeah. and you spend a lot of time in your head. Um, for you, what I'm what I'm really curious about is that turning point. Did that happen before going in prison? Was it during your time in there? Uh, no, it got it. Got it was actually when I got out. Um, so the whole time I was in there, um, like obviously. You had to keep yourself busy, otherwise you go insane. Mm. Um, so for me, I trained a lot. Um, I like to keep fit, and I just got into sports. It was something that I was never into. Like I lost it when when I moved to Shepherd, and I just I didn't like any sports. But um, the whole time I was in prison, I never knew my mother was sick. It wasn't until I got home and I walked through the gates and. She was bold, and I was like, why is she bold? And then my mum sat me down, and they're like, oh, this is what ha- what's happening. So I had different plans, different plans in a way of, um, like, when I was coming out, I wasn't going to change, in a sense. You know, I, I had um, tried to connect myself with um, some not good people and try to go that route. But it sort of changed. It hit me right there when my mum's like, I need you to get a job. I need you to do this. And I promised her. I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll look after you. So, yeah. So when you're in prison, was it was it easy to stay out of trouble on a day-to-day basis in prison or, or were you still up a bit to your old ways? <laughs> um, look, I got up. I'm going to be honest. I got up to some mischief. Um, and in jail, it's it's like for for myself, because I was in jail, that was the environment. You had to learn how to play the jail game. So, as much as it looked like I was training every day, I wasn't probably your straight A student in there. So, when you knew you were getting out. What did that feel like? Oh, it was, I was anxious. I was that anxious that um, 
the night before, I had to ask uh, another inmate if I could have some sleeping pills because I knew I wouldn't sleep. And, um, yeah, I was just, I was, every day, as soon as it gets down to your last week, the time just slows right down and you just, every step you take, every muster that comes up, you just count down, you know, every dinner. Because, you know, like seven days a week, you get seven different meals. You're like, this is the last time I'm having chicken. This is the last time I'm having, you know, beef stroganoff. This is the last time. And you just, everything just slows right down until the last day. And then you just like, you just want, you on the last day when you wake up, you just want the doors to close again because mm. then you know it's over. Yeah. You know, the next time it opens, you're walking out every other door. So what's that feeling like when when it's that last day and you're walking out the front gate? Uh, I felt like 10 men. Mm. You know, it was exciting. Uh, two years being away from the world, because you go in there, your life's on hold. And coming back out, you know, there's so many things you just want to, you know, oh, can't wait to go to Hungry Jacks, or can't wait to eat this, or can't wait to go there, and it's just it's overwhelming that when I when I actually sat down on the train, I was so tired because it was just like that first hour I was just like quickly when they go you need to sign this quickly scribble you know it was, it was just exciting and you feel on top of the world like uh, sorry. In a sense, when you walk out of there, for me, personally, um, I feel like I accomplished something, you know? Like, I, I, my, I've cheated my way probably my whole life out of things, you know? Somehow I've swindled a tactic out of getting out of the most stickiest situations, but this time... I took it day by day, hour by hour, second by second, and I accomplished it. And I just felt on top of the world. Like, it's bad to say, but I was like, you know, that's on my resume now, you know? Like, I, I did that. I did the whole two years without telling the judge, you know what, just give me a year and a half and I'll, and we'll say two years. So, yeah. This is probably the most hard-hitting question that I'm probably going to ever ask on this show, so I'll get ready for it because I might give you a really emotional part to it. What was your favourite prison meal? <laughs> <laughs> the honey soy chicken, probably every second Tuesdays or Wednesdays, if I remember correctly, because um, I was a billet, and so I got to hand out the food. And... Um, I shouldn't be, yeah, if you want to edit it out or not. But I wasn't giving out as much as I should, you know what I mean? And a lot of boys would complain and, um, yeah, I'd just be like, yep, that's your six, that's your six. And, oh, any seconds? now, nah, mate. What did you have? And that's your six, what you had. This is my 24. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd love them. And I'd remember that every second, every second Tuesday, yeah. So on the counter flip of that, my second had to see a question. And again, this one will probably cause a bit of emotion here. What was the worst meal that you had in there? Oh, it was the pasta. I hate pasta. Uh, just <laughs> anything with tomato paste in there, I just can't do it. It's actually, um, it's ironic because I was actually at MRC when the riots hit. And was that over pasta? No, it was over the cigarettes. <laughs> and I'd, I'd, they've come into, like, these guys, uh, the soggies have just come in, and all I can hear is, and I'll turn the corner, and it's just these guys in shields and riot gear, and they split formation. And as they split formation, this guy just comes out with this massive Tommy gun and just goes, thump, thump. And it's just tear gas going, and you you can't survive that. Like so, you had to run somewhere. And I was stuck in education. I've had to then find a safe space, 
And when I got to a safe space, it was actually the prison kitchen. And I would walk through and there's just pasta everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell? I'm like, oh, I forgot it's Tuesday pasta. <laughs> Even and in a riot, you were being tormented by pasta. Oh. So I just planted myself there and waited until they got me. The next two, three days, we had pasta. We had pasta with no sauce to eat. Like, yeah, it was just that trashed that they just, like, they had to feed the prisoners with something and it yeah. was pasta. Yeah. Well, I can safely say that I did not expect that answer when I asked <laughs> what was your worst meal in prison. But I'm so glad I've asked it. It's probably going to be the best question I've ever asked because <laughs> that answer is, uh, was incredible. So, Mac, did you know that there is more to rebuild than it just being a commercial maintenance business. Hang on, no, there is more. So, Rebuild also has an online shop that sells um, handcrafted wooden products. And all these handcrafted wooden products are made in our custodial and community workshops by young men. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Yep, we have fold-up desks, planner boxes, toys, chopping boards, chess boards, they're only to name a few. Now, every product that's in there represents a story. And if you were to purchase one of them products, you will be directly helping rebuild, create employment opportunities. And in doing so, you will be ensuring that as many stories as possible will finish with a positive ending. That is unbelievable. I can't believe you didn't know that. I've been working for the Y for five years. You probably should know that, shouldn't you? Nick, I did know that. So please visit www.rebuild.org.au next time you want a boy with porpoise. Now, back to the episode. Well, I guess we should bring it forward a bit, yeah. you know, to where we are today. You know, you're employed. Now, going back to that, that, uh, that time where your mum said, you've got to get a job, you've said, leave it with me. Yeah. Where do you go from there? It was actually my uh, correctional officer. Yep. He he directed me to this um, employment centre, but when I went in there, because I knew uh, I wanted to do like I, if I was going to change, I had to, I had to like find something that I, I like. Yep. And. Um, I went in there and this lady's like, oh, you know, we got this job. It's paying, paying this so much an hour, good money, you know, out at um, wherever. And she goes, but you're making bathtubs all day. Mm. And I just said, no, I don't want that. She goes, well, you can't pick and choose, mate. You need money. Okay, well, I don't want that. She goes, why? And I go, it's too repetitive. And... When she said that, I sort of took it on like a challenge. Like she, because she's like, "You will never ever find a job that's not repetitive." And I said, "Sweet, I'll hold you to that." I went back and told my correction officer, and he goes, "Oh, there's this thing called rebuild, you know. Um, why don't you try it out? It's sort of what you're looking for, you know. They do all kinds of stuff. The only thing you got to go all the way to Carlton. I go, man, I'll go, you know, across the world if it gives me what I want to do." So, um, yeah, I just I just followed that and it was from that day, um, you know, I came in and it was like, I think it was my mum's second chemo or something. And I remember talking to Hannah, uh, one of the case managers, and I go, look, I've got to go. Um, i just got to take my mum to a chemo. Go, oh, yeah, sweet. Along comes um, the manager and goes, I'll get you a quick interview now. And he, he walks in and um, he goes, all right, quick, three minutes, impress me. And I'm just looking at him and he goes, well, now you got two minutes and 45 seconds. And I'll just... Uh, I just took something from some movie and I just spat it out. I was like, mate, I'm a hard worker, this, this, that. You know, I can't do it. You can't see it now, but I guarantee you, you know, I'll be the best worker you ever know. And I think it's um, from Fast and the Furious. I took this little spin off it 
One of my favourites. Yeah. And I said to him, I go, you know what? If I'm in Sydney and you need me here in the next six hours, I'll be here in three. And he was like, hmm. I like that. See, you use the Fast and the Furious to get to get a job at Rebuild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's textbook, mate. It's yeah. like unbelievable. I'm glad you picked that movie. It could have been a lot worse, but yeah. anyway. So, um, yeah, but it was it was hard at the start. Like, I I was looking and looking, and it, it like I was lucky to have um, a correctional worker um, that you know that actually helped me yeah just didn't go by hey mate look you know it says here you gotta do this this that so do it he's like oh, i sat down spoke to me what do you like what do you want to do did you feel at that time that you were ready to change i did but um and then so it, it this story goes on a little bit longer sorry but what happened was because of the police checks and everything that goes on, I wasn't employed yet. I just got a word of mouth, yes. So during that time, I think it was like four to six weeks I was waiting. It was still hard, you know, um, to the point where I remember I went and I just I got a lot of grog and I caught up one of my good mates. And I was going to, I told him, I said, hey, listen, you got any jobs on offer? And he goes, and when I meant as in jobs on offer, like, you know, quick money, you got anything I can make a quick buck? And he goes, well, what's that, mate? I go, man, you know, my wrench, dude, we're doing it hard. And he goes, don't worry about it. And I was, I was probably at my lowest point at that time. Like, I mean, like, the next lowest point is... You know, something you don't want to talk about. Like, I was very low at that point. And I remember saying, and I had my mate, who's actually employed with us right now, and I said to him, like, uh, and I was sitting in the car drinking, and I don't know if anybody's religious, but I said out loudly, I said, God, it's Wednesday at this time. I said, Friday, if you don't give me this job at Rebuild, I said, I swear, first whatever ATM bank whatever I have to do I'm gonna hit it the next day my best mate rocks up with my rent money and he goes yeah paying your rent and I said no 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 it's alright you know you keep it I go I've I've already given myself a deal with you know I don't know who I spoke to whether it's God or where but I've made a promise to myself you know if Friday doesn't come I'm going, I'm going all in. Friday comes, I wake up, 9.30, the case manager calls up and says, you start Monday. And it was that moment I said, you know what? I'll dust my hands with it. I said, that's it, you answered, you know? I'll start Monday. Incredible. When you started, like there's another part to this, which is, which is your family and you mention it. So when you release, obviously, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times your mum was, was unwell. Mm. Um, and, you know, I know this is a bit of the story as well, but if it's not too uncomfortable talking about it as well, yeah, it, 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 it'd be really interesting to, to hear because you said that your mum, you know, they never told you that she was sick while you were in prison. And then suddenly, you know, you come out and you find out your mum is, 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 you know, has got cancer and stuff like that. And so... Take us forward then from this job starting and then everything you needed to do in your life outside it and how challenging that was. Um, yeah, it's funny you say that. Like, when I got the job, I was excited. We only had one car at home. And um, I think it was probably the second, third week I was working. Mind you, on the weekends, I was doing community service as well. So five days a week, you know, work and then community service. And I think it was on the third week I woke up one morning for work and usually I walk past and say, you know, good morning, Mum, I'm going to work, sweet. I walk past, she's gone and I just end up going to work. I called up my sister and she's like, oh, she went to the hospital last night, you know, she was very, very, she felt very unwell. Um, 
and it was from that moment, it was like every day I would go work, I would wake up, jump in my work gear, go to work, come home, beep the horn, all my family would come out and we'd go straight to the hospital. And that was every day for about two, two months. And I, I, I constantly did that um, until until the day she passed. Yeah. And that's incredibly, you know, difficult time for anyone, you know, for a passing of a parent and, and or any loved one in particular. And for someone like yourself, you were then faced with this. Um, so, you, you know, you've, you're in this job, you've just lost, as you coined it, the captain of the ship. Um, talk us through the next part of this and how you, what was important to you in that life? How did the job play a part in your life? And how did you get through it without reverting? It was, it was, I just felt numb. I didn't know what to feel like. I, and I don't know if that's with everyone, but for, for myself, it was just like, I didn't feel, I felt happy, then I felt sad. I felt, I felt happy because I knew she was in a better place. Like she was, you know, those, those times where at night, you know, I, I should have explained it before, but you know, there were times at night that she would be screaming in pain and, and like I'd just slam my window shut and I'd just keep drinking, you know, because I wanted to block it out. And I knew, you know, like at the time, it'd be, you know, she would want to be, you know, gone. But then I'd be sad that she's gone. And then it was just a, it was a roller coaster up to the burial. And um, I remember um, when I buried her, when she went down in the ground, that was probably, I just, I lost it. Because I knew that was the last time, you know, I would see her. And that's probably when, when all my emotions came out again, probably from all those days building up, just feeling numb. And then after that, it was like, when she was buried and everyone had left, it was just like, oh, all right, um, what do we do now? And I remember when I went to the hospital, when my sister called me, it was four in the morning and she called me and she was just crying and I already knew what happened. I just, you know, really expect it. And I went there and she said to me, she's like, I don't know what to do. And the same thing I said to my mum, I said, don't worry, I got this. And I had to make the same promise to her. So when we actually buried her and everything was, you know, all the families have gone and you're back to a house now with minus one person, it was just like, what do we do? And it was probably at that moment because I knew that, you know, all lies in my family with grandparents and aunties and uncles had, they were locked on us because they already knew my mum was like the captain. So originally when they came down, they were going to take them away. They were going to take away one, two sisters and they say, you guys live your life. We don't think you can do it. And I said, what? No way, mate. I said, no, 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 no one touches them. I said, we stay as a family. And it was one of the promises my mum said before she passed. Um, and then, yeah, it was just like, I knew all eyes was on me that I had to make a very, very hard decision on, you know, how, what will my next move be? Because I knew the next move that I make, whether it's coming back to work or whether I stay home and, you know, and mourn, it will play a pivotal role in what happens to this family. Um, and what helped on one of those decisions was actually, I just, I said to myself, I said, for two years of your life, your sister took care of your mother. I said, your father took care of your mother. 
you know, you while you were in prison. And for myself, to say for myself, I probably lived it easier than what they did. So I said, you know what? Let them mourn and you take lead of the ship. You know, let them mourn. They deserve it. You know, and um, so I actually came back to work and it was when I, the first day back at work was actually that poster up on the wall where I had to record for Momo. And that was my first day back at work. That's so interesting. And, and for anyone who doesn't know, when the, the poster on the wall is a picture of, of yourself that we did for the 2017 video for a breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. And I was with you that day. And, I, and um, yeah, incredible strength and an, an incredible, um, you know, position that you were in to, to, to come and do that um, to, to support others. So how close in that, time when you came back to work was there any like was there any moments where you were close to maybe feeling like you know you could reoffend or you know that the, the, were you on edge at any time was it was a moments um there was until this day there are moments but i think as at the start there were moments where um, where the feeling of reoffending was stronger, um, you know, there was like I, I can't point it down to specific moments, but there are a lot of moments where I'd come home and I'd say, you know what, um, th- this isn't for me, you know, and I think it was due to just my choices in life. You know, I was still, um, as I had took, taken lead, I wasn't being a good leader. And there were times where I'd just I'd blow money on things. And so um, as I went on, um, I think I've been out almost five years, close to six. As I went on, I was still continuing my um, CCO and there were programs that were implemented that I had to attend. Um, Some of those programs actually helped. And um, like I could say, um, till this day, there are challenging moments, you know, where not to re-offend, but I just want to switch up. And like just before I came, I had gone to Coles and I stood in line and this old man pushed in and I could have just snapped and just said, hey, mate, what are you doing? But, you know, who am I to... Maybe this old man needs to get somewhere quick. I wasn't in no rush, you know, so I just stepped back and um, now because I've progressed in life and I've obtained things, I don't want to lose it, you know. I've got a family, I've got a nice job. I found good mates in, in my life that actually, um, you know, have the same sort of goals that I've set out for myself. So the more I've progressed, the more I've obtained materialistic and, you know, friendships that you don't want to lose it, that, mm. that plays a part when you want to reoffend. You're like, well, are you willing to throw all this away? Whereas at the start... I had nothing, you know. I probably just like not saying my family's little, but you know, sometimes like my family can live without me. I just do. I'll just do it. But as I've gone on, I can I can see that they do rely on me. How much of a, a part I play. That yeah. So the fight's still there. Not um, but yeah, it's just uh, you just get stronger the more you progress in life. Mm. And I think as well, the the more responsibility you take on. Yeah. I think, you know, hearing you talk and just hearing everything that you're responsible for now is is miles away <laughs> from from where you were um, before you, offend, you know, went to prison. So yeah. I think, yeah, the more that you take on that, the more, the more you've got to lose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I agree. How's how's your family now? Yeah, good. Um, I think we've become more tight. 
tight-knitted because now we know that you can lose someone mm. and how quick it can go, that we cherish every moment, um, you know. And like currently, um, so it's not – I have – we. I live with my little brother as well, but he's actually my little cousin. Um, but we've raised him since he was young, and his mother has moved to Queensland and left him here with us because um, he just didn't have that uh, father figure in life. So we've taken him on as well. And um, I told her, I said, leave him with us so we can give him the opportunity of having a, you know, a goal you know, whatever he wants to be. So family's good, um, you know. Now we've got the little brother. Um, yeah, we just, if anything, sometimes it's too good, mm. you know. And yeah, your sisters are, what, 10 and 11, your two younger sisters are? Yeah. So how's homeschooling been going for you? Yeah, difficult, you know. <laughs> they, it's um, it's funny because, like, uh, you, you're teaching them these things. And it's sort of like oh, I had trouble as well when I was young. And, um, you know, they can't remember, like, anything. Like, I would say, you remember when James had four apples? Do the same thing. They're like, oh... But also, you know, I'll show them one TikTok dance and they're going crazy <laughs> everywhere. They I say wash the dishes, they're doing a TikTok dance while washing the dishes. <laughs> but young. I'm like, man, you couldn't even remember how many apples James had. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> With your work at Rebuild going from a crew member yeah. to a crew leader, it, uh, for me personally, it's been fantastic to see. Yeah. and. Um, seeing you take that leadership that you do, as you've explained in your own family, into the business. Yeah. Um, it's that personal touch. And I can see you really take that, uh, that role with the young guys that are coming, you know, that are coming straight out of prison as well. It's funny because, like, I see where I was at and all the, like, not faults, but, you know, I, I see everything that I used to do even the transitioning game on sometimes um, some of them want to, you know, some of them have down days and, and they'll, they'll confide in you and they'll be like, you know, I'm thinking and that's exactly how I thought. And I always say, you know, you know, fight the good fight. It's a hard fight. It's a long fight, but you'll be rewarded at the end. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's um it's it's amazing and it's actually I actually take what I learnt from work and I apply it to home. So the way that um that I was um for example, like the way that I I would deal with problems with the guys here at Rebuild, it's I would take that home and I'll do the same thing, you know, like just the way with you'd use discipline or you teach him where the mistakes were made. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually learn a lot from work and I apply it at my own home. Hmm. So I guess I guess a big question is what's next? Um, so I've just transitioned from a, a crew member to a crew leader. And at the moment, um, I'm site manager. So there's about eight-odd blokes out there some of them are crew leaders as well and i'm still trying to learn um how to be able to because i'm very soft when it comes to telling someone what to do instead of saying hey mate can you go over there i'm like oh what do you reckon you know you jump over there if you want to i'm not saying you have to but i'm still learning how to um just be a bit more assertive um, managing skills, um, yeah, like come to doing the work, I could do the work, but now it's I'm still learning. Um, I would like to to grow and step up, you know, um, and hopefully get somewhere in the wild where I have a platform where I could be able to start something of my own or implement my own interests, um, you know, to be able to make changes um, in the streets, as they would say. So, yeah, um, for now, uh, I think I've 
I'm at a good place where to to just keep learning. Um, what's next is probably in the future is, you know, hopefully I'll be running the wire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, always question that we will ask to everyone that comes on um, to the guests, and you were the first cab off the rank. So I think it's important about future and, and dreams and where you were when you were younger and so forth. So no matter if you're a young person that's in prison or whether you're going to be, we're going to be speaking to people that are, you know, politicians or, or people that work in, in prisons or whoever it may be, the same question is going to be asked. So you get to set the bar, yeah? yeah. Whether it's high or low, we'll let you know afterwards, okay? okay. <laughs> but when you were younger, what did you want to be when you, when you grew up? <laughs> Um, believe it or not, I still want to be it today, um, but I wanted to be a superhero, like, I wanted to save people, um, it's funny you say that, because I've got, I've got the emblem of Superman tatted on my chest, and at this job, I've actually found a way to implement what I wanted to be, not you know, going and jumping into fiery buildings, but, you know, something deeper, you, you know, there's there's blokes out here that wouldn't know how to um, budget and just that simple technique of teaching them how to budget in life, you can save their life. You know, just being that, spending that extra 10 minutes at work um, and just talking to someone, not being their boss, but just being, you know, someone that they can talk to, you could save their life, you know. Just like how my best friend offered me and rent money and how this place has also offered, like Rebuild has offered me a job, it literally saved my life. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to be. And I, uh, I think I'm not going to go to that extent, but, you know, I'm sort of living out what I always wanted to be. And, yeah, sometimes my wife says, you can't be a superhero because you want to help this bloke, you want to help that bloke. But it's always been embedded in me. I like to help people. Well, I thought you were going to set the bar high. I didn't know it was going to be that high. So <laughs> no. we might have to stop that question and just just retire it. But, you know, as they always say, um, superheroes don't always wear capes. Yeah. yeah, so some of them wear fluoro That's and work it. for rebuild. That's it. Yeah, so I think you. And so, what age are you again? Let me remind everyone what age you are. I'm 26. Yeah, 26. 26 years of age. Wow, way. I think that's really important. That's why I asked it because mm. everything you spoke about and everything else, you certainly are a superhero. I would believe to you know your family. You certainly you know uh, we certainly from everyone in rebuild. Certainly, you're considered a, a hero to how we are. The way you go about it, the way you've you've transformed your life, and everything in between has been incredible. What you've shared today with us has been s such an amazing story, and uh, and we thank you for that. And you know, probably just finish by by saying that I know you've been through some amazingly difficult times, and 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 what you've done, and I can honestly say that I know that your mother would be extremely proud of the man you are today, mate. Thank you. We all are as well. So thanks again for your time. It's been oh, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Been great. Well done. Oh, cheers. Next week on A Time to Rebuild. Let's put it this way. You're employing young people for a certain period of time. You train them up. You skill them up. Yep. And then you transition them on to another job. Yep. Yeah, and you stay at it again. Yep. Is that the best model, Damo? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Sucker. <laughs> All businesses have maintenance needs such as landscaping and painting. What if there was a way to not only have these completed, but also make significant community impact? YMCA Rebuild is an established social enterprise that trains and employs young people from the justice system to live positive lives. It's changed mine. For more info, head to www.ymcarebuild.org.au. 
Hey guys, if anything in today's episode has triggered something for you, please head over to our website for a full list of services that can assist at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. All participants that are interviewed on the show are supported by a Bridge Project case manager pre, during and post recording of the episode. Time to Rebuild is produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing by Mark Wilson.